Hey, good morning, everybody. Great to see you. Thanks for being here. What a great crowd for our nine o'clock service. I want to welcome everyone in person and also all those of you who are joining us online. And I want to give an extra special welcome to anyone who may be a guest with us today. Thanks for being here, and we pray that uh, you're blessed as a result of your participation in the service today. If you've got a Bible, I want you to grab it and let me hear your pages turning to the Gospel of Matthew and the sixth chapter as we do kick off a new message series called Money Rules, because like in pretty much every area of life, there are certain rules, everyone say rules, rules that when followed can lead to success, and that's certainly true when it comes to handling money, especially handling money in a way that honors God uh, and uh, obeys the instruction of the, of the scriptures. But before we get into that, I have to make an apology to you, uh, to you men, uh, because in contrast to what you just heard on the MPTV announcement, and this is all my fault, I take full responsibility, we will not be having a first Monday men's study tomorrow night. And the reason why is I have pretty much been homesick ever since I left church last Sunday uh, until this weekend, but the good news is I took a COVID test yesterday and I was negative and I'm okay and I'll try not to spit too much on you folks on the front row here but even if I do you're okay because I took a negative test and we're all good so um but that has really affected my, uh, my work week and my preparation. So you just watch for um, what we'll do as a result of having to uh, cancel tomorrow night's men's study. Uh, but along the line of money rules, I thought it would be fun to do some research on different rules for different aspects of life uh, that just kind of put us in the mood to talk about rules. For example, uh, I came across these rules for dating my daughter. I, I would affirm these rules. I have a daughter. She's married now, so I don't have to worry about this. But some of you who have daughters at home might pay attention. Number one, understand that I will never like you. Number two, realize that I am everywhere. Number three, if you make her cry, I will make you cry. Number four, never lie to her or me. And number five, my favorite, I'm not afraid to go to jail. How about a list of house rules? If you're a house guest somewhere, number one, if you want breakfast in bed, sleep in the kitchen. Number two, dinner choices are take it or leave it. Number three, nothing is really lost until mom can't find it. Number four, no fighting, no fussing. I'm not going to say that next phrase. You fill in the blank. But it is an important house rule. And my favorite, remember this, the next time you're a guest at someone's house and you're doing something, I don't know, semi-embarrassing smile, you're on camera. So I like that. Now, I was going to contrast that with the truth that there are some really serious rules in life uh, that we have to follow that not only ensure our safety, but also just uh, the survival of the modern world, the free world. And I had a list of rules for driving in a roundabout at the top of the list. <laughs> but I decided that would take way too much time. I don't have that amount of time today, so we'll save that for another service. Here's the bottom line. Pretty much every aspect of life is governed by some kind of list of written or unwritten rules when it comes to success, and that's certainly true for money. And when it comes to being a Christian, when it comes to loving God and being a follower of Christ, we find those rules in the Bible. And so that's what we're going to spend our time talking about for the next few weeks. We're going to talk about the heart rule this weekend, then we're going to talk about the management rule next weekend, the savings rule the following weekend, and we're going to finish up by talking about the generosity rule. God has blessed me in my life with the opportunity to meet some really wonderful people. Uh, Many of those have been members of the churches I've served, and many of them have been outside the church, and oftentimes God has blessed me with the opportunity to meet people that I never, ever thought I would meet in my life. 
because I have been uh, teaching you about money now for 21 years, I know uh, that you've heard a lot of the stories that I have shared, and I apologize if there are repeats, but I can remember when I was in my mid-late 20s, I came to the realization that I needed to educate myself about how to handle money. My first job out of Bible college was a job as a youth pastor uh, in a church where I told you I ultimately got fired from, and they paid me $125 a week. When they found out that, this was in Houston, where my family lived at the time, when they found out I was going to live with my mom and dad for a while, they decided, well, since I had free room and board, that they didn't have to pay me very much money, so they gave me a whopping $125 a week. Now, uh, they uh, subscribed to that old adage that ministers should be humble and poor, and they thought, if God keeps me humble, they'll do their job and keep me poor, and that's pretty much the way they viewed that. In fairness to them, they eventually raised my salary, but I realized at the time that because I was probably never going to make very much money, I needed to learn how to handle and money, or excuse me, and manage the money that I had. And so a couple of things happened to me. First of all, I, there was an older gentleman in that church where I was a youth pastor who just took an interest in me for whatever reason. And uh, he took me to lunch one day and he gave me this little book, this little thin paperback book called The Richest Man in Babylon. Maybe you've heard of it. You ought to pick it up sometime. It's a book that tells you, gives you lessons about managing money based on a series of parables. And I learned a lot from that little book. But here's the one thing I learned that stood out to me above everything else. I learned about the miracle of compounding interest from that book. Something that nobody had ever really talked to me about. And I remember talking about it briefly in a high school class, but I wasn't paying very much attention, honestly. Uh, and the thing that I learned about that is that you don't have to save. If you start early enough and you're consistent enough, you don't have to save a lot of money to be able to turn that little bit of money into a lot of money down the road because of the miracle of compounding interest. And that always makes me think of Proverbs 13, 11, where the proverb writer says, dishonest money dwindles away, but he who gathers money, remember this, little by little makes it grow because of the power of compounding interest. Well, that really inspired me, and so I started to buy other books uh, about handling money, particularly from Christian authors. The guy who wrote The Richest Man in Babylon was not a Christian author. He didn't write from that perspective, so I wanted to know what Christians had to say. And the two most prominent authors at the time uh, who were Christians were a man named uh, Larry Burkett, who passed away in 2003, and a man named Ron Blue. Now, I'm going to put a picture of the screen of the very first book I ever bought written by Ron Blue. It's called Master Your Money. This book was released in 1986. That's how long ago it was. So that's what, 36 years ago. And uh, that book had an incredible impact on my life, and it really changed the course of my life, uh, financially speaking. And one of the things that I read in the very early portion of that book was Ron Blue told a story about how a, a retired pastor made an appointment with him to come see him one day because he wanted to talk to him about where he was in his life, financially speaking, and try to determine if he had enough money for he and his wife to finish out their life together. And, his, and they, he was 80 years old at the time. The pastor was 80 years old at the time, and his wife had just gone into full-time nursing care. And so he came and visited Ron Blue, and they sat down and started having an interview. And Ron Blue started asking him some questions, like, do you have any debt? said, no, I've never had any debt, never. And he said, well, how, how is it that you've managed to get to the age of 80 and not ever have any debt? He said, well, because I realized if I borrowed money, I had to pay it back. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> and he said, I couldn't borrow money and pay it back and feed my family and still tithe, still be faithful to my church. And so I never borrowed any money, so I don't have any debt. And he went on to tell him that he and his wife, over the course of their life, and here's the thing about this pastor that, that Ron Blue writes in the book, he never made more than $8,000 a year. Never made more than $8,000 a year. But he and his wife had been able to save $600,000. 1986, 36 years ago, okay? 
a considerable amount of money, especially when you think about somebody who had never made more than $8,000 a year. And Ron Blewis says, with that all you have? And he said, no, when I retired at, six, at the age of 60, I took $10,000 and I invested in a new company. And now, 20 years later, that $10,000 is worth $1,063,000. And so here's this man who had never made more than $8,000 in his entire life. He and his wife had been able to amass a fortune of $1,663,000 with absolutely no debt. And I got to tell you, friends, I'll be honest with you, when I read that, I was hooked. Not because I had some desire to be wealthy or to be a millionaire or anything like that, but because it, it really proved to me that you don't have to have a lot of money to be able to save a lot of money and plan for the future that way. And so, uh, fast forward today, and I've read lots of other books on money management, but this is still the book that made the biggest impact on my life. Now, a few years ago, just by chance, I discovered that Ron Blue has family in this church. Just out of the blue, I discovered this. Rick and Nancy with them. They're here in this service. They're sitting right over here. Ron Blue is married to Rick's sister, Judy. And they told me several years ago, or a few years ago, that Ron and Judy were going to be visiting them. They lived in Atlanta at the time. They were going to come to church here. And I was heartbroken because you know what? I was already scheduled to be out of town. And I was going to miss them. But here's another picture, Ron Blue, they told him about uh, me and and my love of this book. And so he brought me a revised version of Master Your Money that he he signed on the inside. And that was really special to me. Well, several weeks ago, uh, in the early part of the summer, I was playing golf with Rick. And Rick told me that Ron and Judy had moved from Atlanta, where I think they'd lived for over 40 years, something like that, back to Bloomington, Indiana. And that he wanted to set up a, a round of golf if I was interested. And I said, absolutely, I'm interested. And so several weeks later, here we were at Bloomington Country Club. And this is Ron Blue, who is now 80 years old, retired living in Bloomington. And me, uh, Rick was in a, another cart by himself. Uh, and uh, I'm sure that when Ron, that round was over, Ron Blue was never more happy in his life because he was tired of answering all my questions while all he wanted to do was play golf. But it was a great, great experience for me because here's somebody that had made a huge impact on my life that I never thought that I would ever meet. And now I'm sitting next to him in a golf cart playing a round of golf. Afterwards, our, lunch, our wives joined us for lunch at Bloomington Country Club and I sat next to Ron and we had uh, a great, great conversation. And he shared with me a financial tool that he uses, a teaching tool he uses for people um, to help them uh, better serve others when they're teaching them about finances. And that teaching tool is shaped around what he called the four H's of financial wisdom. I'll put them up on the screen. He says they are heart, health, habit, and hope. And there's a reason why the heart is at the beginning. Because if you're a Christian, if you love God, if you are a genuinely faithful Christ follower, then every single money rule you embrace in your life needs to begin with your heart. And that brings us to Matthew chapter six. So if you've got your Bible open there and you're able, go ahead and stand with me and let's read some scripture together. If you're a guest with us, uh, we always make the public reading of Scripture a significant part of our service, and because we have such respect for God's Word, we stand together when we do it. It's a very brief passage, Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Jesus is speaking in the Sermon on the Mountain. This is what he says. Do not store for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy nor thieves break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask to God 
God, that God would bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Let me tell you the first thing that stands out to me in that passage. It's right there in verse 19 when Jesus says, do not, excuse me, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. In the original language of the New Testament, those two words store up come from the same root word as that word treasures come from. The same root word, Greek root word, that that word treasures comes from. And the word, the Greek word for treasures is the Greek word thesauros, which means in simplest form, a treasury. We get the English word thesaurus from that Greek word because a thesaurus is a treasury of words. But here's what that means. Here's why I bring that up. When Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, he is literally saying, do not treasure your treasures. Do not treasure your treasures. What does that mean? That's the first instruction Jesus gives us in this brief passage. What does it mean to treasure your treasures? It's not complicated. We don't need to make it complicated. We treasure our treasures when we stockpile our treasures, our earthly treasures, whatever that might be, starting with money and the things that money buys. We treasure our treasures when we stockpile our treasures and make them the source of our confidence, the source of our trust, and the source of our identity. Jesus says, don't do that. And here's an important thing to understand about Jesus' teaching here, and I want to be really clear about that. When Jesus says, don't store up treasures on earth, don't treasure your treasures on earth, he's not talking about treasure in the sense of what we need to live in our lives, because an undeniable fact of life is that all of us needs a certain amount of wealth, a certain amount of treasure in order to live. And he's not telling us, he's not even telling us that we can't have enough to live a really nice life, because the Bible doesn't ever teach us that just because we love God and follow Jesus that we have to be poor, or we have to live modest lives, even though some people believe that and they teach that. And they'll use verses like this, Matthew 6, 19, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And they'll use other passages of scripture like the story of Jesus and the rich young ruler as a proof text for this belief that if you're going to be a Christian, you have to live a modest life. You remember the story of the rich young ruler. There was a young man who came to Jesus one day asking him, what, must good, what, good, what good thing rather must I do to inherit eternal life? He wanted to get the assurance of eternal life. And after a while, Jesus looked at the man and he said, go sell your possessions. This is Matthew 19, 21. Go sell your possessions and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And the next thing that we read in Matthew 9, 22, if you're familiar with the story is, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. In other words, he went away sad. He never became a follower because he he treasured his treasure. He had great wealth and he treasured his treasure. And it's a sobering story, but let me ask you a question. Have you ever noticed that that's the only person Jesus ever said that to? That's the only guy. And the reason he told the rich young ruler to sell all he had and give it away was because Jesus looked in his heart and saw that his wealth, his treasure would always stand between him and God. And until he got rid of that treasure, there would be no genuine surrender to God. Because he treasured his treasure, he stockpiled it to the point where it became his confidence, it became his source, it became his identity. His life was tied up in his wealth. But in spite of that, friends, I want you to know today that the Bible does not teach us that it's wrong to have wealth. In fact, some of the wealthiest men that ever lived in the history of the world, we read about in the pages of the Bible. And the Bible doesn't teach us it's wrong to have wealth. In fact, the Bible teaches us the opposite, really, in a sense, from cover to cover. You can go to the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament and read these words. This is Deuteronomy 8.18. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce what? Say it with me. Wealth. 
wealth. God gives us the ability to produce wealth. And let's be honest, as long as we've lived in this world and as long as we live in this world, there are gonna be people who have the ability to produce it on a large level and people who produce it on a small level and a lot of people in between. That's just the reality of life in this world. You go to the New Testament, 1 Timothy 6, Paul gives us an incredibly important teaching about money and how we're to handle money and how we're to view money. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 6 where we read those familiar words where he says, for the love of money, not money itself, but for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But one of the things he says in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17, he's talking about God and he says, God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. God does not have as a part of his will for our lives just because we love him that we have to live modest and simple lives. The book of Proverbs gives us instruction after instruction about how to build wealth. Proverbs 13, 11, I mentioned a minute ago, says dishonest money dwindles away, but he who gathers money little by little makes it grow. Proverbs 21 and verse five says, the plans of the diligent lead to profit. Everyone say profit. Profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. A little bit later, Proverbs 21 and verse 22, or verse 20 rather says, in the house of the wise are stores, stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours all he has. In other words, a wise man, and God wants all of us to be wise. He wants us all to pursue wisdom. In the house of a wise man, you find somebody who knows how to save and knows how to plan and get ahead, financially speaking. Proverbs 24, verses 3 and 4 says, By wisdom a house is built, and through understanding it is established through knowledge. Its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures. Now, there's no reason for us to believe that at least a portion of what he's talking about there when he talks about rare and beautiful treasures is wealth. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, and it's not gonna be up on the screen, is Proverbs 13, 16, which simply says, every prudent, everyone say prudent, prudent man acts out of knowledge, acts out of knowledge, but a fool exposes his folly. When we act out of wisdom and we act out of knowledge as we go through this, this uh, life, then we're going to put ourselves in a position to be rewarded for that, and sometimes that reward will come in terms of finances. I can go on and on, but I'm going to stop right there. The Bible does not teach that it's wrong to be financially successful. What the Bible does do is it gives us warnings. It gives us warnings about the place and the priority that money and financial success should hold in our lives. And that's what we see in Matthew 6, 19 through 20, because Jesus said, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy nor thieves break in and steal. And then he said, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so he gives us a warning in those verses about not treasuring our treasure in this world, on this earth. And listen to me. No matter how deeply committed you are to Christ, no matter how deeply committed you are to living the life that God has called you to live, you can still make the mistake sometimes of getting caught up in a lifestyle of storing up your treasures on this earth, of treasuring your earthly treasures. And here's why I say that. I have been a saver of money for my entire life, from the time I was a little boy and I got an allowance until today where I get a paycheck deposited in my checking account every single Friday. I don't know why. I don't know why, because I have two brothers and two sisters, and none of them are savers, none of them. 
But I got the savings gene somehow when I was young. And so as a result of that, and I'm just being really transparent with you for a moment, I understand the satisfaction and the accomplishment that you can feel as a result of saving money. And you can get to the point where you look at that money and you start to think it's a little bit of my identity or this money, this amount of money proves that I'm successful in life or this money provides me with earthly security. And in the end, all you want to do because of that, all you want to do is just keep adding to that money so that the amount continues to grow. But at the end of the day, money is nothing more than a tool that we use as we live in this world. There's nothing supernatural about money, and money will never be a substitute for God in the sense that it gives us the things that all of us were created by God to long for, things like meaning and purpose and identity and peace and hope and on and on and on. In fact, if you still have your Bible open to Matthew chapter 6, I want you to look down to the very last verse in this section of the chapter, and it's verse 24, this section where Jesus talks about money. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, he says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then notice what he says. He says, you cannot serve both God and, say it with me, money. Now look at your Bible. Look right down at your Bible. You see that word money is capitalized? You ever noticed that before? Why is the word money capitalized there? The word God is capitalized. We understand that because he's a sovereign God who created and sustains the universe. But why is the word money capitalized there? Well, you can have a lot of different explanations or answers, I guess, to that. But here's my answer. The reason why that word is capitalized because Jesus is identifying money for what it is in this sinful, fallen, and broken world that we live in. And here's what money is in many cases. It is, or what money becomes in many cases, it becomes a rival God in our lives. It's not just some sort of impersonal medium of exchange. It's something that has the power to dominate our lives like a God. Certainly a little G-God, but like a God. And so here's the ultimate question we have to ask ourselves. How do we avoid the mistake of storing up treasures on earth? How do we make the mis- avoid the mistake of treasuring our treasure on this earth? I'm going to give you two things in my remaining time. Two things. Number one, if you like to take notes, write this down. You have to examine your priorities. You have to examine your priorities. In other words, we all have to ask ourselves routinely, routinely, what's most important to me in my life? Where do I find value and self-worth? What do we point to? What do I point to as a measuring stick for success? And if your honest answer, honest answer, not the Sunday school answer, But if your honest answer has anything to do with the amount of money you have or the things that you have that money buys, then you need to rethink your priorities because there's a strong chance you've made the mistake, at least on some level, of finding your confidence and your trust and your identity and your security in money, and that's a foolish choice. And Jesus gives us one of the reasons why that's a foolish choice in Matthew 6, 19. There's more than one reason, but he gives us one of the most important reasons why that's a foolish choice. Because in Matthew 6, 19, he says, do not store for yourselves treasures on earth. Now note this, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Here's why it's a foolish choice to treasure treasure on earth. Because it's temporal and it can be here one day and it can be gone the next. How many of you are old enough to know that's true? Everybody should raise their hand on that. I look around this service and I see most people who are old enough to know that's true. 
because you've gone through some time in your life where you've lost money, maybe even a significant amount of money that you had saved, for example, in the stock market, that you had invested in the stock market, and in some cases, you lost a significant amount of money, even though you didn't do a single thing wrong. You didn't do a single thing wrong. You didn't have it in high-risk investments. It wasn't overly speculative. You weren't foolish in what you were doing, and you lost it, even though you didn't do a single thing wrong. Back in 2008, we went through a, a, a market crash that was the result of the collapse of the U.S. housing market, and we don't have time to go into detail on that. Uh, I, I remember this. I was, in, I was in Kenya. I was in Kenya trying to get CNN on this TV to find out what in the heck was going on uh, when all of this happened. But what happened is the housing market collapsed because a lot of ordinary people, and, and no, not because of, but, but as a result of this, a lot of ordinary people who made wise financial decisions were responsible all their lives in handling money, paying bills, doing everything the right way related to money, lost money because of the actions of others, because of the foolish actions of others. And so one day you had a certain amount of money in your investment accounts, and the next day it was 40% less, and you didn't do a single thing wrong. But listen, that's the, nature of, that's the nature of life in this temporary world that we live in. That's the nature of the temporal reality of money. It can be here one day and gone the next. And that's something that God understands, and that's something that Jesus warns us about, and he does it here in this text by saying, do not store for yourself treasures on earth. Don't treasure your treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Now, that's, that's what it would have been in Jesus' day. It, that list of the things that can cause our money to be here one day and gone the next is so much larger today in the modern world that we live in. But the principle is the same. It's the same. And so, we got to make sure that we find an alternative to treasuring our treasures in this world. And, how to, and what, what would that alternative be? Well, the alternative to treasuring your treasures in this world is to take whatever amount of money you have been entrusted with by God and managing it, stewarding it, whether it's a little or a lot, in a way that reflects the heart of God. And when I say the heart of God, I mean the things that matter most to God, the most to God, rather. So one way you do that is by... Uh, as you treasure, as you, as, you, as you store up treasures, as you gain treasure in this, world, in this world, you examine your priorities and make sure that they're in line with the heart of God. And that's a sobering thing to think about as we handle whatever amount of money God has entrusted us, handling it in a way that reflects the heart of God. A couple of weeks ago, we had... Greg Pruitt here in our service, who is the president of Pioneer Bible Translators. He shared a powerful message. I hope you were here. Uh, he shared a powerful message about the need of every Christian to do their part in making sure that the Bible is translated into the language of every people group in the world. And, and we're a part of that here at Mount Pleasant. We are fully funding, fully funding as a church. Nobody else is contributing to this. The translation of the scripture into the language of the largest remaining unreached people group in the world, a group of people that live in Asia. We can't even say the name of the people or the specific name of where they are because it's, uh, they're in a communist country and it would be threatening to them. And so he challenged us with regard to that. And if you were here and you were in the comments, he brought this powerful visual display that showed us translation works that have been completed by Pioneer Bible Translated, translators, translation works that are in the progress of being completed. And then there was a table that showed us how many translations remain uh, that need to be started so that people can get the word of God into their language. Now, let me tell you this. I had a personal conversation with him after Saturday night service and dinner. I asked him a question. I said, Greg, uh, 
How much money does it cost to translate one verse of scripture into someone else's language? One verse of scripture. How much does it cost to translate, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have, have everlasting life. How much does it cost to translate John three sixteen into the language of someone else in another part of the world? You know what the answer is? $35. $35. Now let's think about that like this. Do you know what? $35 or $350 or $3,500 or $35,000 given as a gift to Pioneer Bible translators would be, it would be an act of storing up treasure in heaven as opposed to storing up treasure on earth. We store up treasure in heaven. We treasure our treasure in heaven when we manage whatever amount of money we have in a way that reflects the heart of God. And I can tell you for sure that getting the language of the Bible into the hands of every people group in the world reflects the heart of God. Somebody say amen to that. So we need to examine our priorities when it comes to how we handle whatever amount of money God has entrusted to us. I have been the pastor here at this church for 21 years. I just, this, this, this past week, just clicked off another year anniversary here as your pastor. And this is an incredibly generous church. And I am so grateful for that because of the impact that it makes. But we follow this pattern of giving every year historically. It's the same year after year after year. Our giving is strong from December through May. And then in June, our giving drops off pretty significantly through about October. And we have to catch up in November, December. That's why we do this financial series every November. We, used to, we tried doing it in January and February for a couple of years. We said, no, that's not working. We got to go back to November. And historically, it's the same every single year. I understand that. But can I be honest with you today and tell you it frustrates the crud out of me because it makes me feel a little bit more anxious than I want to feel related to finances and financial obligations and giving and those kinds of things. If our priority as followers of Christ is to manage whatever amount of money that God has entrusted to us in a way that reflects the heart of God, then we will be committed to generosity that is consistent, consistent. One of the best things my wife Sandy and I have done, and we've done it now for many, 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 many years, more than I can even count back and, and uh, take note of, is we make every part of our giving automatic. And that means it happens whether we're here or not. It also means that the money we've committed to give uh, to this church doesn't get spent on other things. It doesn't get spent on emergencies or vacations or new purchases or anything like that. In fact, the truth is, every aspect of our lifestyle, from the house that we live in to the cars that we drive to the vacations we take, every aspect of our lifestyle is determined by certain financial commitments that we make ahead of time and at the top of the list is a financial commitment to generosity. I think that should be the norm for followers of Christ who are involved in a dynamic church like this. Jesus said, do not store for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And he said, but store for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy nor thieves break in and steal. And then he said, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. We got to examine our priorities when it comes to the way we handle the money that God has entrusted us. 
to make sure that we heed the warning of Jesus when he said, don't treasure up your treasures on earth. Here's the second thing, I have to do this quickly. We have to make sure that we live in the present, but we focus on the future. We live in the present, but we focus on the future. Do not store for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy nor thieves break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here's what the Bible teaches us. It teaches us that this world is not our home. Somebody say amen to that. This world is not your home. If you're a follower of Christ, this world is not your home. Some of you were probably like me when you were a kid growing up in church, you used to sing a song, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through, my treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue, the angels beckon me from heaven's open door and I can't be at home in this world anymore. That's what was grilled into my heart when I was a little boy. Oh Lord, you know I have no friend like you. If heaven's not my home, then Lord, what will I do? The angels beckon me from heaven's open door and I can't be at home in this world anymore. This world is not our home. The Apostle Paul captured the reality of that so well in these words from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1 when he said, read this with me, let me hear your voices. Now we know that if the earthly tent that we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. What a strange verse. Now we know that if this earthly tent we live in is destroyed, is he saying like our bodies are like earthly tents? That's exactly what he's saying. And you know why he's saying that? Because here's the thing about a tent. And everybody's familiar with camping out in a tent, at least on some level. I'm not a camper, but I can remember camping out in a tent when I was a little boy in the backyard. How many of you know what I'm talking about? And some of you are, man, you're seasoned campers and you pull that tent behind your truck or you drive that truck, you drive that tent down the highway and, and I don't even have any idea how much that costs. And that's okay, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care as long as you're not treasuring your treasure in that truck, okay? I don't care. But here's the thing about a tent. No matter how nice it is, it'll always be temporary. Somebody say amen to that. No matter how nice it is, it'll never be like home. It'll never have a king-size bed. It'll never have a refrigerator. It'll never have a comfortable lazy boy chair. It'll never have a warm fireplace or anything like that. No matter how nice it is, it'll never be home. And I look out at you and I look at myself in the mirror and I realize that for some of us, that tent is starting to sag and fray and wear out a little bit. How, about, how many of you know what I'm talking about? That's the nature of a tent. Well, that's why, Jesus, that's why Paul said, now if this earthly tent we live in is destroyed. And what he's talking about is the fact that one day it will be destroyed. But he goes on to say, you don't have to worry about that because here's the, here's the, here's the deal. We have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built with human hands. And that is a great verse to remind us that this world is not our home and we don't treasure up our treasure on earth as a result of that. We treasure up our treasure in heaven. And that's why Jesus finishes this passage by saying, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that's what we focus on. What Jesus is saying when he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, is this. He says, your treasure follows your heart and your heart follows your treasure. That's why this is the heart rule, friends. Because everything that we've talked about so far comes down to where our heart is. Because your treasure follows your heart and your heart follows your treasure. That's the, rule, that's the heart rule. If you're a Christian, your heart and your treasure are inseparably linked. So what we need to, what we need to do, every one of us to, today, what we need to do every single day of our lives is we need to be intentional about pave, paving a path as we handle whatever amount of money God has entrusted us. We need to be intentional about paving a path for our hearts to follow when it comes to our treasure. Whatever treasure God has entrusted us, and let me close 
and I'll do this, try to do this quickly by telling you how I think we help people do that here at Mount Pleasant Christian Church. I love this church for so many different reasons. But right up at the top of the list would be that I really believe this church is involved in some way in changing the world for Christ every single day, at least for someone somewhere. That's the mission of our church, to change the world for Christ one life, one family, one opportunity at a time. Just think about what's happened in the last few weeks. We came together as a church family to support our brother Ajay Law in India in a letter-writing campaign aimed to help uh, him get relief from a very difficult time of persecution that he is continuing to experience in India. We had Greg Pruitt from Pioneer Bible Translators with us a couple of weeks ago. We already talked about that. We talked about the visual outside in the commons that showed completed translation works, uh, translation works that are in progress and translation works that have yet to be started. Uh, last weekend, we had uh, the founder and the director of uh, Pro-Am Ministries, a powerful ministry in Poland that we have supported for over 25 years, sharing with us an update on the many good things that are being done there. And that's just a handful of our mission partners. We have more than that, both locally and globally. Every weekend when you come to church here, you're given the opportunity by just giving a dollar for every person in your family, you're given the opportunity to help someone in need immediately every single week. And I have never been here on the weekend when the change for a dollar story was not a compelling story that tugged at your heart. Every week throughout our impact campuses, I'm talking about the impact center on the back of our property here, impact Old Southside, impact Fairfax, and impact Bethany, we are serving the members of their neighborhoods and these neighborhoods by providing food and clothing, after-school programs, youth outreach programs, school partnerships, neighborhood enrichment, and church services on the weekend. In two cases, those are our church services that wouldn't be in those neighborhoods uh, if we hadn't stepped in because those churches would have shut their doors and gone away. Our members here are leading in local Bible clubs and schools throughout our community every week. We openly share the ministries, resources we have like Soul Care, our women's ministry, the entire ministry of our community life center, which includes this booming youth sports program with the people of this community every single day, whether they attend our church or not, whether they even believe in God or not. And there's so much more that just scratches the surface. There were times in the past when Sandy and I would support other ministries outside of our church financially. And I, and I don't regret that at all, but I will tell you, I don't do that today. I don't do it any longer. Because I know that all the many ways Mount Pleasant is impacting the world for Christ today, both locally and globally. And so all I need to do in my life to pave a path for my heart to follow every day of my life to make sure that I don't treasure my treasure on earth, but I treasure my treasure in heaven is I just remember what God is doing in and through the ministry of this church. And my heart doesn't just follow that path, friends. My heart is drawn to that path. And it pursues it with passion because I know that every dollar I give to this church is storing up treasure in heaven. I read a, we'll close like this and the team can come. I read a survey that was in Christianity Today magazine that was done by the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability recently. They surveyed more than almost 17,000 donors to 17 Christian ministries, and they asked this question, how likely are you to support ministries that work to, and then they filled in the blank. Number one, how likely are you to support ministries that work to tell others about Jesus? 95% said, I'm 
likely to support that ministry. How likely are you to support ministries that work to make God's word available to all people? 95% said, I am 95% going to support that ministry. How likely are you to support ministries that care for orphans? 86% said yes. How likely are you to support a ministry that aids in disaster relief? 77% said yes. How likely are you to support a ministry that addresses injustice or oppression? 66% said yes. How likely are you to benefit a ministry that benefit, or to support a ministry rather that benefits its community. 46% said, I am likely to support that ministry. And I'm telling you, friends, we do all of that. All of that. And in doing that, we treasure our treasure in heaven. Father in heaven, we love you and we're so grateful for the instruction you give us in your word about handling and stewarding money. You are a good God, a generous God, a gracious God. And I know we're all thankful for all that we've been blessed with in our lives. Help us, help us to be so very serious and so very committed to handle whatever amount of money we've been blessed with in a way that honors you and treasures up treasure in heaven. And help us keep our path, our hearts on that path, the path toward treasuring up treasure in heaven. We love you, and we praise you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.